So a couple of things to start off with. I know that my beard is gone, so all the funny looks I'm getting, I get it. I've been called a monster by my youngest child. Um, my wife's response was, nope. <laughs> uh, to, to her credit, honestly, it was when I shaved everything but a very thick Tom Selleck-esque mustache, and she said, nope. Um, and I was putting on my headset here, and I was like, why does this feel so weird? But I don't have, you know, fur to, you know, has a barrier between the, uh, the microphone and my, and my skin. So that's the, that's the first thing. So let's just get that out of the way. I thought about sending out a picture so that no one's surprised and you're not distracted, you know, with, with everything. Just imagine you if, you, if you mine out a diamond, you polish it, and then, you know, it turns into this beautiful, beautiful piece of jewelry, which is what you have before you. So um, second thing is this. That is that yesterday was Wesley's birthday. All right, yesterday was his birthday. We had a good day. What he wanted to do for his birthday was go to the mall, and he wanted to do what's called a, uh, a pop head hunt or search or whatever. If you don't know what a pop head is, it's this little boxed, it looks like a paperweight or some kind of desk icon, and it's just kind of an exaggerated head with a little body, kind of like a bobblehead, but not so much a bobblehead. Anyway, they're, they're really popular to collect. They're supposedly highly collectible, so that's what he's into now. So we spent hours of his birthday at the mall searching for pop heads, rare pop heads, right? And so anyway, so it was a good time. We had a good time doing these things. And then while we were at the mall, which is a place I try to visit as infrequently as possible, I discovered something very, very important and very timely for me as we get into today's text, and that is this. I do not belong in this world. (laughs) If you're a follower of Christ and you go anywhere where a lot of the world congregates and are always in rare form, you realize very quickly that you are not a part of this world that you are a sojourner passing through, and that there's a reason why people don't look and act or think the way that you do. Now, I won't go into all the details about all the things that I've seen, but anything that you can imagine on a sin scale that our culture has helped to perpetuate, that has helped to bolster, that has helped to amplify, I saw it. And so I'm seeing these things, I'm like, can we get out of here as quickly as possible, you know, uh, let's get this pop hunt rolling and so that I can get out of here and get normal. You know, we, rather than eating in the food court because there was no room there because they were only at half capacity, we ended up eating our Wesley's birthday lunch in the van, you know, which to me was the, the, the best reprieve of the day. It's like, oh, <laughs> finally in a, in a, in, in quarters where I'm the strangest one, you know, and so it, it was, it was better you know i can only handle so much of 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 being out there so um and i wanted to bring that up because it kind of really transitions well into what we're going to be talking about today so if you have your bible you can turn to the book of john chapter 13 we're only going to deal with a few verses today so before i read the text let me just share with you the scene it's very simple jesus has just recently washed the disciples feet In the last text, Jesus has identified his betrayer, Judas Iscariot, son of Simon Iscariot. 
So Judas has been revealed as the betrayer. The disciples are scratching their brains, scratching their heads, saying, what's going on? This is, this is strange. Maybe they're putting together some things that have happened in the past. Maybe they're thinking, hmm, maybe that's why Judas acted that way. Maybe he acted that way because he was never truly a follower of Christ. We don't know for sure, but we know that Christ dips the morsel and he hands it to Judas by way of showing that this is the one that will betray me. And if you read the same account in a parallel passage in the book of Matthew, you have Judas, interestingly, after Jesus, I think, gives him the morsel, he says, is, is it I? Am I the one who's going to betray you? Now, I don't know exactly what's going on there, but it's pretty interesting when you think about it. So the disciples' feet have been washed. We have Judas has been identified as the betrayer, and then Judas goes out into the night, and that's where Jesus talks about now the Father will be glorified. Right? He's going to do what he was commissioned to do by the sovereign and providential God of the universe from the very beginning. Since before the foundation of the world, he's doing exactly what has to come to pass in order that Jesus would be uh, arrested and taken before Pilate, taken before the Sanhedrin, and eventually scourged and crucified so that he could die and be raised so that we can have the final and completed effective gospel, right? So these things came to pass by God's sovereign will, by God's divine decree. And now you have this moment where Jesus responds to these disciples and he gives them these instructions. He says in verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. And by the way, if Jesus comes and addresses you as a little child, this is good, right? This is not something that he said that was derogatory and something that they would have taken offense at. This is, this is very, very special for Jesus to treat his disciples this way. It's, a, it's very endearing. It's a strong term of affection for him to say, little children, because he loved them so much. Little children, he says, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me just as I said to the Jews. Now also I'm saying to you where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as what? Just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So there's a lot that's going on in this text. I think today you will find to be very practical and very helpful and hopefully some low-hanging fruit there for everybody to grab onto and make application. So here's my objective today, and I'm going to offer a caveat with that. Here's my objective. I want to show you that next to our love for God and for His glory, the love shared specifically within the body of Christ, I'm speaking of the interpersonal relationships from Christian to Christian, not necessarily or excluded to Haven Ridge, but the church. I want to show you that the love shared within the body of Christ takes a premium to all other loves. Now, here's the caveat. Interestingly, Jesus spoke to husbands and said, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So I don't want anybody to walk out of here thinking, so am I to love my, you know, am I to love you, Alan, more than I love my wife? I'm not saying that. But in a real sense, the command is the same. You love your spouse differently than you love your brother. It's different. But in the same sense, you love them the same, especially if you and your spouse are in Christ. Okay? So, that's the caveat. But interestingly, the same 
restriction or the same template that's given to husbands for wives is the same template that's given for disciple to disciple, and that is love one another as Christ loved you. All right, so husbands, you love your wives as Christ did what he loved the church. How do you love one another? Interpersonal relationship between Christian and Christian, you love each other just as Christ has loved you. Who are you? You are the church, so it's the same. All right, so that's the objective with the caveat. So let's get right into the text. Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. We're coming closer and closer to the death of Christ. All right, children that are in the room, just understand this. Jesus has said for quite a while, sorry, Amelia, you're hiding behind the post. Uh, Jesus has said for quite a while, I'm going to die. My time is coming. I mean, he's let them know this. This should come as no surprise to them, even though at certain times there's protest, Peter, you know, who's saying, no, 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 may it never be. You know, hey, Peter, I'm going to wash your feet because this is what this means. No, no, not me, not me. If I don't do this, you won't share with me. Oh, then wash everything, Lord. Jesus has already said in, in, in John chapter 10, he said, I'm the good shepherd. He said, the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What's he doing? He's telling them what the shepherd's going to do. He's saying, hey, you believers, you who are following me, I'm going to lay down my life. And what's he going to become? In addition to the shepherd, he's going to become the door through which the sheep enter in so that they can be a part of the kingdom of God. He's that door, right? He's the door into salvation. He's the door into heaven because he goes to prepare a place. So Jesus has been leading them up to this point. He says, I'll tear down the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Speaking of what? His death. Jesus tells the disciples that he must be killed. He tells his disciples in just a previous uh, chapter 12, he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then John gives you the explanation as to why Jesus said what he said. He said these things so that they might know what, what kind of death he's going to die. So it's been very clear as far as Jesus letting people know what's coming around the corner. Jesus is going to die so that he can become the door. Jesus is going to die so that he can fulfill Scripture. Jesus is going to die so that others might have right relationship with God the Father because otherwise they are estranged because of the fall. So where is Jesus going that the disciples can't follow him? Because that's what he says. He says, listen, you're going to have me for a little while and I'm going to say this to you just like I'm, I said it to the Jews. You can't follow me where I'm going. So what is he talking about? I mean, this isn't a difficult text, but we rule some things out. Could he be talking about the grave? Is he saying, look, I'm going to go to the grave for three days. You can't go with me. Maybe. I, I doubt it, though. And somebody might say, well, I can go to the grave too, right? I will go to the grave. You know, millions and millions of people have gone to the grave before me. If there's something I know to be true of this life, it's death and taxes, right? These things come for all men. So death is the final enemy according to scriptures. I'm going to go there unless Christ should come back. You know, however all that works at the end of all things, Matt. <laughs> um, so Matt and I talk about eschatology sometimes. And so uh, anyway, so you have have this this issue where Christ is doing this work and he's going somewhere and he's saying you can't come with me so no he's not talking about the grave is he talking about going to God the Father and there were some that would argue yes clearly that's what he's talking about he's saying I will go to be with God the Father and you can't go with me to God the Father and I would say that's probably not what he's talking about because one day I will be with God the Father if I died today based on my stance based on the identity that I have in the gospel because of Christ's finished work not because of mine he tipped the scales where mine didn't do anything to it 
I would stand before God the Father. I would be in right fellowship with God the Father because of Christ and Christ alone. So it's not God the Father. So is it the cross? Maybe now we're getting somewhere. But we have to explain that too because guess what? Thousands of people most likely died on a cross before Jesus did. And thousands of people most likely died on a cross after Jesus did. But there was a very profound and fundamental difference between the death of Christ on a cross and the death of thousands of other people's on, people on the cross. Namely is this, that any other death on the cross, any other sacrifice on the cross is insufficient to atone to appease or to substitute on the behalf of anyone else or even yourself. And so Jesus, as I understand this scripture, is saying to them, whether they understand it fully or not, he's saying, I'm going to go to the cross, but it's not just that I'm going to a cross. That's not just the barrier that I'm speaking of. I'm speaking of the barrier that says it takes a it takes the perfect spotless lamb. It takes the God-man to offer up his body to be, to, be, to be crushed, to be killed, to be broken, although no bones were broken. You understand that, right? So, so it takes that in order to fully atone for sin, in order to fully substitute and to effectively substitute and then to appease the wrath of God. So that's why they can't come because a mere man's sacrifice is insufficient to atone. It's insufficient as a substitute and it's insufficient in terms of absorbing and satisfying fully the wrath of God. Ultimately, your death will be insufficient because the requirement was perfection is what he's telling them when he says you can't come where I'm going. But you know what? Sometimes... Sometimes I think we're guilty of trying to make atonement for our own sins, for our own transgressions. Sometimes we do that. Sometimes we, we try to heap our good works on the scale so that our good works will outweigh the bad works. And we have to be very, very careful with this because here's, here's what this means. Here's what this looks like when we say, okay, our works become an expression or our works become that which makes us right with Jesus versus our works be, being an expression of our faith. You see, those two are very different. If I'm trying to say, I'm trying to heap up these good works in my life, good works matter, Right? You say you, have, you say you have faith, I will show you faith through my works. So we're not discounting works. Works are essential. Works are a part of the evidence of being in Christ. How can you have a supernatural encounter to that scale and there be no evidence in your life to speak of, right? So let's say you have these works, but there's a difference in these works being what I'm counting on or banking on to make me right with Jesus versus being an expression of having already been made right with Jesus, through Jesus, and through Jesus exclusively. There's a big difference. And we have to be very, very careful because our Protestant faith will quickly become laced with Catholicism if we're trying to curry favor with God through our works. I have family and friends that I love very dearly that are Catholic. But I cannot sacrifice sound doctrine on the altar of family or on the altar of friendship so let me be very clear christians 
you don't have to make penance for your life. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God towards your sin. So therefore, your works are both an evidence of being in Christ, and they are the display of the transformation that has already taken place, and they are the proof that you have been justified. And if you are justified, that means that you have right standing with God, and it's not on your own merit. It's on Christ's. So we have to be very, very careful. He says, where I'm going, you cannot come because only the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient. Let's move on in the text. So here we let me read it again. When we had gone out, Jesus said, oh, sorry, uh, well, I'll read that. Now the Son of Man has been glorified and God is glorified in him, speaking of what Judas is going to do as an act of betrayal. If God is glorified in him, then God will also glorify in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come, a new commandment I give to you. So we stop right there, because this should pique your interests. If Jesus is arriving on the scene and saying, hey, I've got some new things to add to the list, you know, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law, so we're not discounting anything that's already been said or written. But I've got some things to add, and you need to pay attention. And in context, he's speaking specifically to those who are born again. So this applies to you, and it applies to me. So our attention should be laser-focused on what does this mean when he says a new commandment I give to you. Well, here's what's interesting about this new commandment. What's the newness in the new commandment? I think it's two things. I think, one, Jesus says, here's the new commandment, that you love one another. How as I have loved you. So Jesus provides a template. He provides a blueprint in the way that we're to love one another. It's not love according to your emotions. It's not love according to how your heart's told you to love. It's not love according to how your mama loved you. It's not love according to how, how culture and Hollywood teaches you how to love or what that's supposed to be about. He's saying you love as I have loved you. You follow the template that I have set for you, and that's how you are to love. I think that's the first aspect of the newness of this new commandment. The second is this. He says that you now love one another. another one another this love is now directed towards each other within the body of christ jesus is first being very specific with how we're to love as christ loved us and now he's being very exclusive in the way that we love or the 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 objects of our love and that is that within the body of christ that we love one another a certain way now let me be very clear this does not this does not diminish the weight behind the second greatest commandment. The first is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is that you love your neighbor as yourself. We even see in Matthew 5 that we're to love enemies. So there's a way that we all love one another, even across denominational lines, even across religious lines and things. There's a way that we love one another as we should, being image bearers of God. But there's a uniqueness to the way one believer loves another believer. And he says, you're to love one another as I have loved you. This commandment is both exclusive and it's specific. So I think the exclusivity and the, spec the, 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 the specificity, yeah, I think that's what gives it its newness. 
Christ says that you love as Christ loved us. Jesus doesn't say these other things about your emotions. About uh, not e- He's not even speaking of how you love one image bearer to another across all kinds of lines of belief. He's speaking of how you love one another in the confines of the local um, and confines of the church. And by the way, this is the game changer. Okay, this is big. So what type of love is this? Let me just read a few things to you. This type of love places a premium on the church herself. This labors to look after the church, just as Jesus labored, ultimately died, to take care of, to look after the church. So you say, are you trying to say that if Jesus ultimately died for the church, that we should be willing to die for one another as the body of Christ? Absolutely, that's what that means. That's what that means. That doesn't mean that you wouldn't lay down your life for a stranger. But it absolutely means that that's the mentality we have to have, that we would go the distance for one another in order that we would love one another properly and look after each other's interest. How often, let me ask you this, how often do we attend church, do we attend a church service thinking of ourselves? How often do we arrive on a Sunday or, yeah, let's just say on Sundays, with a consumeristic mentality. Maybe there was a song we didn't like. Not because it was theologically bad, but, eh, I don't like it. It's too slow. It's too fast. So there's a spirit that's <laughs> not like a spirit, like the spirit of God, but there's something in us that just says, I, I just, I'm just, I'm just going to remove myself from that. I'm not going to participate. And I'm, I've been places where I've heard people have told me that. I don't like that song. It's theologically good, but I just, I'm not going to sing because it's too contemporary. It's too upbeat. Right? Are we, are we attending church with a consumeristic mindset? Do we attend church and say, you know, what can you do for me? As opposed to what can I bring to the table for the benefit of others whom I love? We need communion. We need ex- to experience worship together. We need to be sharpened by the word of God. Don't, don't get me wrong. We need those things. But you know what else we need? We need each other. We need each other in the fact that we are appropriately displaying and practicing the right and proper love for one another. Specifically the love that Christ has for the church. So have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever gotten up on a Sunday and said, okay, even though I don't feel like it, I need it. I don't want it, but I need it. All right, I'll confess to you as, as one of your pastors, there, are, there have been many Sundays where I'm like, I don't want to be here today. I don't want to preach this. I don't want to play guitar. I don't want to play guitar alone. I don't want to sit in front of the camera for three months. I don't want to do these things. You know what? I don't want to have this hard conversation. I don't want to do these things. I don't want to be reprimanded or rebuked. I don't want to be challenged in the way that I think. But you know what? I need every one of those things. You know, so first of all, we set emotions aside and say, I'm going to be driven by truth, not emotion, which is what we talk about a lot here. And I abandon this consumeristic approach to doing church. And I say, you know what? My brothers and sisters might need something that God would intend to bring through me today. They might need affirmation. They might need exhortation. They might need some encouragement or even admonishment, God forbid. But sometimes people aren't afforded that opportunity. They are, that love is withheld. Why? Because of a consumeristic mindset. 
Listen, it's not arrogant to think on how you can be a blessing to someone else. It's not. There's a fine line, obviously, if you think, hey, I'm the cat's pajamas and I've got, you know, I've got, I've got it all. Just listen to me. Yeah, that's arrogant. That's a problem, you know, uh, and you need to come and someone needs to admonish you in love, right? So, but it's not arrogant to think, you know what, I think I'm a good encourager. Who can I encourage? And guess what? Guess what? If you're, if you're in active community with people as, as, as we should be according to the scriptures, not just on a Sunday morning, by the way. I mean in your lifestyle, because this love transcends what happens as you sit there and you listen to me. As a matter of fact, most of it takes place, and most effectively so, when you are syncing up the natural rhythms of your life with people that are sojourning with you, with people that you are encouraging and being encouraged by, with people that you are sharpening against. So no, it's not arrogant to say, hey, I've you know, I'd like to affirm some people and say, hey, I saw this, well done, you know. These people go to this abortion clinic and they get, they get flipped off, they get cursed out, they get things thrown at them. Jake had a lady throw stuff at him the other day, you know, and it's kind of how we laugh, but I mean, that's real. The sad part is that's from a heart that's filled with hatred, that's from a heart that's filled with malice, that's from a heart of people that agree with killing their children, it's from a dead heart, and that is grievous to the highest degree. And the byproduct, and I think we would all admit that that's a, that's a small price to pay to have something thrown at you. Maybe, maybe these guys or these women who go to these clinics, maybe they come and they feel defeated because they go out there and there's just hatred spewed on them over and over and over again when all they have to give them is love. And maybe they need to come here and here, here, here. I'm so encouraged, I'm so challenged that you guys go out there. I'm so challenged, you know, that, 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 you, that you take risk. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I admire the, the, the wives that, 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 that maybe they can't go, maybe they do, but they pray for their husbands. Or maybe the wife goes and the husband can't, and the husband's saying, hey, honey, I'm praying for you, standing as a woman, standing for the unborn. This is huge. This is a part of how we coexist as the body of Christ. This is how we properly love each other in a different degree. Maybe we need these things. So this type of love places a premium on the church. This type of love seeks after the best interest of others. Christ taught and lived in such a way so that they might grow. The disciples grow and understand his ways. I mean, you go back and look at all the Gospels and put them together, and what you see is Christ walking around as this school with these disciples, this rabbinic school, and he's sharpening them. He's making them ready for what he's going to commission them to do upon his ascension. He's getting them ready because that's what love does. It seeks the best interest of others. It seeks to correct. This love maintains eternal perspective. And again, these are just examples from the ministry of Christ. When he says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter, because Peter's standing in opposition because Jesus is saying, I must suffer these things. I must ultimately die for the sake of men and for the souls of men. And Peter says, no, 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 we'll keep that from happening as this valiant warrior that stepped in, the, stepped in the way to protect Jesus. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus is ready to correct. He's ready to rebuke. He's ready to speak truth. Why? Because he loves Peter. And Jesus, his love, causes him to have his mind on eternal things. Because is that not the best thing that you and I need from one another? Do you not need to respond to me and things in my life, decisions I make with an eternality behind it, being driven by eternal things? 
hey, I want, I want Zach Vaughn, I want him to stand before God, knowing that we'll give an account for everything in our life. So is it wrong for me to ever come up to Zach and say, hey, man, you know, uh, I, I'm 40 years old, you know, you're, you're barely in your 20s, you know, hey, let's, let's talk about some things. And I'm not saying there's anything to correct you, brother, but if there were, and I say, hey, let me pour into your life, watch out for this, and I start sharing wisdom. Why? Not because I want to be heralded as this saint and this great guy, but because I want eternal things to matter, and the display of that is saying, Zach, you're going to stand before a holy God, and I want you to stand before God, and I want you to be able to show him great and mighty things that, that have been done for the kingdom by the grace of the Lord through you as a vessel, as a conduit. Because that's what love does. Love, this kind of love, seeks to correct. It seeks to look after the interest of others. It looks to maintain an eternal perspective, and this type of love is willing to forsake its own life for the benefit of others, as exemplified through Christ. Listen, we don't love on our own terms. This is clear. Jesus has said, this is the way you need to love. You love as I have loved you. So, so get rid of everything that you've learned from your Hallmark cards. Get rid of everything that you've learned from your, your movies, you know, uh, whatever it is. I haven't, you know, these, I've got 90s movies in my brain. I don't know what kind of romantic comedies or romance movies are on the, are on the scene today or whatever books it is that you're reading as a romance novel. Forget what you think you know about love. Forget these things. Go to the source, and Jesus said what? I am love. God is love. Therefore, he knows something about it. So the one who is love is instructing you on love. You best listen to him. Because we don't love on our own terms anymore. We've been given a guide. We've been given a template. My dad makes some of the best cornbread that I've ever put in my mouth. Now, not that I've gone around just sampling tons and tons of cornbread, but I want to say this about my dad's cornbread. He has a recipe, as many of you do, who have created whatever meals you've created. Melanie might make macaroni with some kind of crusted heavenly goodness on the top, you know, whereas Austin might make macaroni a different way. But let's say they have their own recipes. I can say, hey, Melanie's macaroni is this, this, and this. Austin's macaroni is this, this, and this. If I take Austin's macaroni and I start manipulating the recipe, I might have macaroni, macaroni. I might have macaroni. That's the problem with saying these words over and over and talking as fast, as fast as I do. But Austin, all of a sudden, I've made macaroni, and it might be good, but guess whose macaroni it is not? Austin's macaroni. Because to be his macaroni means he has this recipe. Now everybody wants macaroni and cornbread. <laughs> I tried to make my dad's cornbread, but I altered the recipe, and then I ended up with cornbread that was okay. But no matter what it tastes like, because I manipulated the recipe, I don't have my dad's cornbread. In order for it to be his cornbread, I have to follow his recipe. The same is true. In order for us to love in the way that Jesus has prescribed for us to love, is we have to follow that example. In order for us to effectively and rightly love one another, we have to follow the template that he has set for us. And that is found in the things that I've mentioned, just to name a few. So he says, a new commandment I give to you. So it's a specific commandment because he shows you how to do it, but it's also an exclusive commandment commandment. He says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. In this context, this love seems to be narrowed down to the love we have for each other in the body of Christ. Again, not to take away from the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, or to take away from the fact that we must love our enemies. Christians should be marked by the way they love people. But Jesus says, 
people will know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And the way you love one another matters because the template is you must love one another as I have loved you. So we're not talking about loves for neighbors. We're not talking about love for, um, uh, love for enemies. We're talking specifically about the love for the local church or for the church. Love for others outside the church but not inside the church is problematic because it's just one dimension. Clearly, we love all people, and that looks differently. But we are supposed to love one another well here, and I would even argue that in order for you to be effective and to, be, uh, to love others in the world rightly, I believe you have to love each other here rightly. And for time's sake, I won't go into illustrations, but if you want to have a conversation about that later, I can talk you through some illustrations that I had come up with. We do well to show love for the world around us, for the lost, for neighbors, for enemies, but that's only one dimension of the love that we're told to express. We must have love for the body. This premium that's placed on loving each other in no way devalues or lessens the impact of the fact that we're to love others outside of the body. So how is love best expressed among the saints? By placing a premium on the body of Christ. By looking out for the interest of others. By speaking with gospel fluency. Speaking gospel. Speaking truth into one another's life. By maintaining an eternal perspective when it comes to our interactions. This doesn't just pertain to Sunday morning gathering, by the way. It pertains to our way of life. So let me just add this to this, okay? The way the Christian life is lived, the, the expectation, as I understand it from the Scripture, is not I need to love rightly when I'm here on Sunday mornings from 10 to 11.30. I need to do that. Or maybe when I'm in MC. You understand what the church is, right? You understand that the church is the entire body of Christ for whom Christ has given him his life. So when Christ gives this prescribed method of love and to be identified by the world as those who love and belong to Jesus, that means we follow that pattern. And the pattern, the template, is that we don't just love one another here. We don't just love one another when we gather at MC. But our natural rhythm of our life should be to gather in such a way with believers, with those that you identify with, to those whom you belong. And the mantra or the, 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 the meat of, of what goes on when you're together is that there's affirmation and that you're stirring one another up towards good works. You're stirring one another up in your affections for Christ. What does it say about a gathering when you arrive but you leave empty? If you, if you arrive and you leave and all that you walk away with is, you know what, I didn't know the scores of last night's game. I'm glad I ran into Joey because Joey could fill me in on how Clemson's doing because he's a big Clemson fan. If I walk away with nothing more than that, then you have not taken advantage of the purpose of gathering. And I would go as, to far, go as far as to say is you have not loved one another to the potential that you should be loving one another because in these moments especially with what we're facing right out there we have to be admonishing each other we have to be encouraging one another so this is in this is in no way a slam to anybody who's not gathering with us today we've already said that we affirm the fact that they're looking out for family but the point is the gathering is not the only place where love is shown you are the church, and you're on mission, and everything else should become an accessory to that mission that you're already set on upon your, 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 
your shift into gospel uh, identity. It's difficult to interact properly with those on the outside when we haven't interacted properly with those on the inside. You know, I'm at the mall yesterday and I'm seeing things. And what if, what if in my flesh I get frustrated? What if I need the body of Christ to help shape my worldview? What did we do before we had seminaries? What did we do before we had Bible college? We had the church. We had older men, older women speaking biblical truths, worldview shaping truths into everybody, into younger Christians' lives to help them so that they could respond rightly to the world that's around them. So what happens if I'm at the mall and I don't have the sharpening action of a brother or sister in Christ admonishing or exhorting or affirming or encouraging me and helping me to see or to help me get back to some reality because sometimes I get hot and bothered, sometimes my panties get in the wad, right? And sometimes I freak out and I need somebody to say to me, hey, hey, bro, back up. I, call, I don't know how many times I've been on the phone with Austin. I'm, ah, I'm bad about this. I'm, you know, and Austin's like, eh. you know, and he, you know, the, the soothing sounds of Austin calm me down you know <laughs> he's never done that to me I'm just waiting I'll feel better about myself if Austin would just call and rant at me just once listen to what Paul says in Colossians and then the author of Hebrews says here put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness speaking of the church here kindness meekness humility patience bearing with one another and if one has complained against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So also you must forgive, and above all these, put on what? Love. Which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Do you see the parallel with this text and what Jesus said? It's almost as if Paul's trying to communicate what Jesus has already said. He said, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. How much of your interaction with the body of Christ, whether it's Haven Ridge or whether it's anyone else that's a sojourner in this world, how much of your interactions look like that? And I start looking at this over this week, and I start thinking in my brain. I'm like, I don't. A lot of it doesn't, and it should. We can have fun. We can cut up, absolutely. But our relationships within the church, not our relationships only when we gather for Sunday morning or for missional community, but our relationships when we gather. Period. Should be marked. In some way by these things, compassion, love, forgiveness. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir one another, one another up to love and good works. How many, of your, how many of your exchanges with your Christian friends are marked by that, by, by stirring one another, one another up towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What does our gathering say about our relationship to Christ? You see, if we gather and we leave empty, there's one of two problems. There's either a problem with the gathering or there's a problem with the person. We have to take full advantage of what we have in this community of faith. 
Like I said, I don't always want it, but I always need it. And a final thought is this. Jesus closes this by saying, listen, love one another as I have loved you. This is the new commandment. By the way, the world will know that you belong to me by the way you love one another. Your ears should perk up. Because is that not what we want? Do we not want for the world to see that we belong to Jesus? And Jesus says, hey, there's, there's a lot of ways that there's a lot of things in your life should be evidenced, but here's a strong one, by the way you love one another. You see, a lot of people are known for a lot of things. If I say the word Bill Gates, you think Microsoft. If I say the word Alexander Graham Bell, you think telephone. If I think George Washington, first president. If I say Adolf Hitler, you think Holocaust. If I think, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., you think civil rights activist. You know, if I say these things, you don't, there's a lot of things in their life that they could be known for, but there's something that your mind automatically goes to. When I say Babe Ruth, you think the King of Swing, the Sultan of Swat, the King of Crash, the Great Bambino, Probably because in 22 years he had 714 home runs. He had 2,873 hits with, 2000, uh, with 506 doubles, 2,174 runs with 2,214 RBIs. That's a successful career over 22 years. <laughs> and so when I say Babe Ruth, or if I just say the great Bambino, most of you that aren't this tall will know exactly who I'm talking about and why. Because he left a mark. And the world recognizes people for their, uh, for their humanitarianism. The world recognizes people for their wealth, for their crimes, for their contributions, for, the tech, for their contributions to technological advancements, for their athleticism, for their awards, for their achievements, for starting a protest or starting a movement. But the kingdom of God will know you because of your love. Or I should say, let us be known throughout the world for the way that we love one another. There's a lot that the scripture has to say about love. But we would do well to consider that the scripture is very clear. That if we want to be known as followers of Christ, as Jesus says, here's the, here's the way in which you come to that. Here's the way you love one another. Scripture says love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices with truth. It bears all things. It hopes in all things. It rejoices with truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, does not keep a record of wrong. As I go through this, I can check off on all of them where I fail to love rightly. So it's a reason that we give attention to this and say, this is a short list of a greater list throughout Scripture, and I need to jump on it <laughs> and start loving people well. Some of the strongest evidence we have to convince the world that we are in Christ and that Christ is real and in our hearts is the way that we love one another, particularly in the community of faith. What does your love for others say about your relationship to Christ? Before I pray, I just want to challenge you with this one thought. Look for opportunities to love one another. Not to feel a certain way, because love isn't the way he's talking, described on emotion. 
But love is doing. Love is action. So look and make opportunities to love people well, for that is how you will be identified as a follower of Jesus. Let's pray and we can be dismissed. Lord, again, thank you for bringing us together. Lord, though we are few in number, Lord, I pray that we would take your word and we would make right application. And Lord, as the word is impactful to us, Lord, that you might use it to impact the world around us. Lord, that we might make right application of these things, that we might process these things right, process these things well, Lord, and that we might be lights that shine brightly and that shine rightly for you with regards to what love is and how love should be appropriated within the body of Christ. Help us to seek out opportunities, Lord. Lord, even when we don't feel like it, thankfully, love is not relegated to, uh, to some emotion. Lord, otherwise, it would be really hard for us. But Lord, would we choose love, would we choose to do for others, choose to look out for the interests of others, choose to affirm, choose to correct, choose to admonish, choose to encourage, Lord, choose to challenge. And Lord, therefore, the result can be a sharpening and a growing. And ultimately, ultimately pointing the world to who Jesus is. Father, I pray for those that are not with us today, Lord, and those that aren't able to be back into whatever body they belong to, Lord, I pray that you would continue to uh, show great grace and favor to them, Lord, whether it's allowing them to couple with another body during this season. Lord, would you watch over those churches as well? Would you help us pastors to navigate this weird, tumultuous time? Lord, with everything going around us, Lord, with everything that are happening, with all the protests, with all the Black Lives Matter stuff, with the COVID-19 stuff, Lord, with the sexual revolution, with everything that's been at our doorstep and becoming increasingly more volatile and worse, Lord, would you give us wisdom, Lord, and would you cause love to help us, help us to fix a right posture, both within each other and to the world that's around us. Lord, would you take care of us? Would you keep us? Would you cause your face to shine upon us as we leave this place today? In Jesus' name, amen.